How are you guys doing today? It is uh, great to be back with you, and happy 4th of July weekend. And what a, a wonderful weekend this is for us as a nation. And my wife and I just returned from South Africa and from England, and God is doing wonderful, wonderful things in our nations, but I am, am so excited to be here on this weekend for what this holiday means to us. In 1776, on July 4, the final signatures and approval was given for the Declaration of Independence. Tracking back two years, the colonists had found themselves in a frustrating time under the oppression of England, taxation without representation, as well as uh, many liberties were not being bequeathed as they thought they should be, and so they came together and rallied among themselves and began petitioning the government of England for more freedoms which they weren't given, and instead King George III sent a military force into the colonies, and in 1775, in April, the first shots were fired in Concord, the famous riot of Paul Revere shouting out the British were coming, uh, happened at that time. And as things got more and, and more uh, desperate for the colonists, they sent delegates together into Philadelphia, where they charged Thomas Jefferson with the responsibility of writing the Declaration of Independence. And... You are familiar with the history of this, but I, I love this quote that the, our founding forefathers wrote. They said, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And we are very familiar with the uh, lives of Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, but we're not so um, uh, well-versed in understanding what happened to these 56 different signers of the Declaration of Independence. One in three would lose every single penny that they had to their name and all of their belongings. Nine of them would actually pay for their freedom and for our freedom with their lives. It's hard to wrap our minds around this sacrifice that was sown by these men that had no idea how it would go. At the time, they weren't heroes. In fact, they were men committing treason, them and their wives saying that they were against their, the, their sovereign, who was George III of England, but they stood for what they believed in, for the blessings of their families, of their children, for each other, and for the generations to come. And now we reap the tremendous reward which they sowed in sacrifice. And this is the spirit of Christianity. This is the spirit of Jesus, to lay down your life for a greater cause, to lay down your life for something bigger than yourself, to lay down your life for further generations. And one of the most powerful moments for us in South Africa was being in a 
township. The townships are where at one time all the poor were placed in outside of the cities, and we were in a township outside of the city of Stellenbosch, 50,000 people crammed in these little shanty towns, and I'm actually sitting on the floor of the seven-by-seven metal shack, just uh, four sheets of corrugated metal. I'm sitting on the floor, but I'm listening to my new friend Simbi Soso and my new friend Mondesi, and they're talking with passion in their hearts about Nelson Mandela. And if you don't know who Nelson Mandela was, he's the first uh, black president of Africa who stood against apartheid. Apartheid was uh, a, a regime in which people were forcefully segregated and depleted of their rights. And he stood against that, believing that all, she, all people should be treated equal. And they talked about why they were so thankful for him. They said, you know, Mandela, when he stood... He, he was accused by uh, the government, and they told him, if you would just leave, we will pardon you, and we will give you finances, and you will be a very wealthy man. But he said, I'd rather sacrifice so that everyone could have freedom. And so he spent the next 26 years in prison in a small cell on a desolate island called Robin Island. And there, that day, as I sat on the floor in that shanty, they said, we are so thankful for someone who would lay down his life and suffer for 26 years so that we could have freedom and opportunity today. You know, there's something in our hearts that just rise when we hear about someone that would lay down their lives for the betterment of others. Someone who would stand and... and deny themselves the privileges, deny themselves the comforts that they could so easily take as their right and instead lay down their life for their children, for their family, for a generation and for generations to come. And you know, today we celebrate the freedoms that we take for granted in America, but I do want to say that it's a time in America that we as a nation are on a fast moral decline and a fast slide away from the biblical foundations that our forefathers started this country with. And this is a, a recent Gallup poll I just read yesterday said this, that while 85% of people in the U.S. would say that they are proud to be an American, 71% believe that our founding fathers would be disappointed in America, in the America they see today. And I want to begin by saying this, that we as the church need to be the first to take responsibility for the place we find our nation in. The Bible says, let judgment begin with the house of God. And we want to go low today to open up our lives and examine our hearts and say, how are we responsible for much of the moral decay that we see in our culture today? So many things that the Bible clearly says that are wrong, being called right. And so many things that are pure and holy and found in Scripture being called wrong. I was a junior in, high school, a junior in college when I stumbled into a worship service that was much like this. People passionately crying out to God, raising their hands, closing their eyes. And a preacher got on the stage and he started talking in a different way that I had heard anyone speak in church before. For me, church was a religious service that had very little to do with my life. I came in, got all dressed up. I sat in my pew. I don't know why we call them pews. There's nothing enticing about that word, pew. 
But we sit there, and, and, and so this man was talking about going to the ends of the earth, going to Papua New Guinea, and sharing with tribes that had never heard the good news of Jesus. And as they preached the gospel, miracles, signs, and wonders would follow. He even talked about a night where they showed a film about creation to Christ, and then people were giving their lives to Jesus, and the power of God came so strongly that he said that the walls of the hut they were in were shaking just like the book of Acts. And I'm thinking, oh, I would love to see something like that. He talked about returning from, from that trip and seeing the power of gospel to transform lives and the power of God to, to actually heal and restore bodies. And he came back and felt led to start a training school, a discipleship school in a local church that would infuse a passion for Jesus, his purposes, in the earth in a belief that the Bible really is true and can change lives today. And they started a school of, of eight people and did an outreach just like these outreaches that you heard of many of us just returning from. And on that outreach, they went into Bulgaria that at the time was in a great economic depression. And as they proclaimed the gospel on the streets, scores of people came to Jesus. And, and miracles were happening on the street, broken bones popping back into place. Deep wounds, actually having skin regrowing on them and people coming to Jesus uh, by the dozens and dozens. And then they went into Siberia right after the wall had fallen and in such a desperate, hopeless place in the Soviet Union, people finding joy and peace. And those churches are still there today. And I'm hearing these stories saying, man, if that's really happening on earth, I have to be a part of that. That preacher was Jimmy Seibert. He would become my mentor. He'd start discipling me and soon after was led out to launch a church called Antioch. Antioch would be a, a, a training and sending center, standing on the word of God to see society transformed. And you say, why the name Antioch? In fact, I was just uh, preaching in our Cape Town church, the Antioch church in Cape Town, and I was talking to the lead pastor who was a guy I discipled uh, as he was in college, and he shared that he was on University of Cape Town inviting someone to his church saying, hey, we'd love to have you come to Antioch this Sunday. And he said, and the, and the guy on the street says, hey, I, I couldn't come to your church uh, because it's Antioch. And he said, why? He goes, because I'm not anti-anything. I, I love all people, and I'm not anti Ock or anything else. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't understand. No, Antioch, it's a name in the Bible. And so I, I want to open that up to you today so you understand why I'm talking about Antioch, because it's a prototypical church in the New Testament. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13, if you would, the first several verses of Acts 13. Give us a picture of what the church in Antioch was. And it says this, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now I want to backtrack for a moment and also read to you from Acts eleven twenty-five through 30, the first time we see the book of, I mean the church of Antioch mentioned. It says this, And he left Tarsus to look for Saul. That's talking about Barnabas. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now is this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. I want to give you five components of the Antioch church 
today found in Scripture so you can understand God's blueprint for a transformational New Testament model church. Five components of this powerful church we see because this is how we are shaping ourselves at All People's Church. Point number one, the church in Antioch was a multi-ethnic church. The church in Antioch was a multi-ethnic church. That's why they were first called Christians in Antioch. Up until this point, the movement of Jesus had been an entirely Jewish movement. Jesus was a Jew. The first 12 disciples, they were Jews. As God Paul called Saul, who became Paul, he said, I will make you a light unto the Gentiles. If you're confused on what a Gentile is, look to your right and your left, and most likely you're looking at a Gentile. We have just a few Jewish believers in the church, which I'm very thankful for, but the majority of us are Gentiles. That is a non-Jew. And there were so many people coming together, and they weren't Jewish any longer, and so they looked to their right and their left and said, all we can think of is they're a little Christ. That's what Christian means. They were so much like Jesus, they said, let's just call them Christians, which means little Christ, because they're from all these different nations. It was a multi-ethnic church. We see that from Barnabas, Saul, Simon from Niger, that's Nigeria, Lucius of Cyrene, that's North Africa. Barnabas was from Cyprus, a Mediterranean European area. Paul from Tarsus, which is Turkey, which is Asia. Uh, Manian was an aristocrat. He was uh, a part of uh, Herod's family, of his foster brother. You see rich, you see poor, you see all different nations. This was the New Testament church. I like to say often, if you don't like multi-ethnic churches, you're not going to like heaven. <laughs> because gathered around the throne are a lot of people that don't look like you. We are a multi-ethnic church, and the reason is, is because that is what Jesus taught us to pray on earth yes. as it is in heaven and in heaven is every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne. Second component of the church in Antioch, they were led by the fivefold ministry. It says in the church in Antioch there were prophets and teachers, but then it goes on to list Barnabas and Saul, who we know were apostles. In Ephesians chapter 4, we understand the fivefold ministry to lead the church apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. We believe in the multiplicity of giftings equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. When they're the apostolic in the church, you're always going to new places and creating new movements for the kingdom of God. Going to new places. The church, they're hearing God and creating new movements. Pastors are in the church, they're saying, hey. They're right here and they're nurturing you and making your life a lot better. When the evangelists are here, they're always saying, hey, let's look outside. There's more people to be saved. Let's not just think about what's inside the church. There's thousands of people in the city that haven't come to Jesus yet. And then there's teachers who say, hey, it's great. You got some people sitting there, but do they really know how to follow God? Let's teach them. And all these people undergird the church and equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. If you don't want to do the work of the ministry, you're sitting in the wrong church today. Because we're not just a church that puts people up on platform and wants to just listen to them and enjoy that. We want to be a people who is an army advancing forth, extending the kingdom of God in our generation. Every person being equipped to transform the world around them, including our children. Next, the church in them, including our children. of God. We even
saying no to the golden arch. Kind of culture God can spread.